This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the Thompson Colburn podcast series, Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, a healthcare transactional attorney at Thompson Colburn. Our last speaker was Deborah Geisler, founder and principal of Activate Healthcare, who dissected the ins and outs of employer-based health clinics that provide high-quality care at a lower cost and with greater patient satisfaction. In this episode, I'm delighted to introduce Amit Vaishampayan from BKD. Amit will be discussing compensation and culture in population health. Amit, welcome to Talking Pop Health. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'd be happy to. First of all, it's great to be here, Eric. Let me start back um, in the beginnings, so to speak. So I started my career in accounting um, and and quickly uh, realized that that wasn't my calling, and so I fell into healthcare consulting. Um, I spent several years learning the foundations of healthcare and healthcare consulting really in the perspective of a business valuation analyst. So looking at all kinds of deals in the healthcare space, and there were plenty of deals to work on at the time. From there, I, and I was with Huron Consulting Group as I engaged in that kind of work and really, uh, I, I like to call it, kind of started to build the foundation for what would be a great launching point. After Huron, I was presented with an opportunity at ECG Management Consultants, which is a boutique healthcare management consulting firm. And at ECG, uh, my, my specialty areas were really both the business valuation, but then looking at all all kinds of, well, looking at the relationship between providers and healthcare organizations in the healthcare space. And so what I was able to gather and what I was exposed to was really the relationship or sometimes lack of relationship between the providers of healthcare and the organizations that engage those providers. The problems with alignment and the problems can be financial in nature, strategic in nature, operational in nature, et cetera. But it's really understanding those relationships, aligning incentives, which many times is, comes in the form of compensation um, and, 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 and other incentives. And then to look at it from a regulatory angle or a regulatory perspective. And so just recently, I joined BKD as a director in their physician enterprise consulting practice to, uh, to help and build and grow their robust healthcare performance advisory practice. Through your career, you've got a lot of insights into the healthcare system here. Are, are there any particular areas that you feel uh, present an opportunity for improvement? Certainly. <laughs> the, uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's also some pie-in-the-sky stuff. Financially speaking, I think it's it's not a great secret that the state of healthcare is in disarray, um, and and that a lot of organizations around the country are really dealing with and having to uh, overcome some significant financial challenges. So that's where my specific role starts, um, but there are certainly areas in there are certainly other areas as well. 
So your real focus is on uh, transforming enterprises towards population health with a focus on sort of the financial. You're helping them get there without uh, going bankrupt, to be honest, right? That's exactly right. If we think about the financial piece, so compensation, aligning incentives, making sure that you understand the disincentives that are created by a system, there are certainly operational, strategic, and even IT-related elements to those. But I think that a fundamental starting point is really the financial aspect. And when you're looking at a hospital, their biggest expense line item is really what they're paying their providers. So that relationship is extremely important to analyze and assess on an ongoing basis. So how do you go about that? How do you transform an organization's culture, um, which is probably unit-based, to embrace population health? It's a great, great question. Um, I think it's really important, first of all, to have the, the conversation to start. So a lot of organizations talk about the transition to pop health, and there's a lot of talk, and there's a lot of pointing fingers at uh, systems and organizations that are that are taking the leap, but a lot is just talk. And so not actually having population health as a priority in the culture, like integrated in the culture, is a real problem. It, it, it really, it's difficult for an organization to get started when it's not ingrained in the culture. So for example, you can have a lot of money, rather you can pay a lot of money to go and have a compensation plan developed, but the culture matters more. If you believe in pop health, it should be part of the compensation plan and part of the greater culture. So all the stakeholders in that organization need to agree that population health is a critical and important part of not only what we're trying to do, but what we're doing today. So how do you go about that? I mean, anyone can say, hey, we do pop health. And, you know, they might think they're waving a magic wand and all of a sudden they're doing pop health. Um, but it's a lot more than that, isn't it? It is a lot more than that. I would say a great starting point is, and this is obviously after getting the buy-in from the key stakeholders, the board members, the governance, the, the, the key members of governance. But I think... A lot of folks just forget that really physicians are a large driver of the actual change at these healthcare organizations. And so really it's getting the right buy-in from the physician. So once you've got it ingrained in the culture, part of that isn't just lip service, it's also sitting down with the physicians and understanding how we can prioritize population health initiatives in their day-to-day. A key example of why it's failed so much is because hospitals and health systems are unfortunately tied to an old world style of compensating their physicians. As you know, a lot, the vast majority of compensation plans across the United States are based on a pay per unit system. And what that does is it's rather what it's done is it's created incentives and disincentives. So in a population health world, when you're trying to care for a population and really the focus is on triple aims and it's on the well-being of the patient, et cetera, 
What's difficult is if the physicians are compensated and incentivized in a system that doesn't reflect the goals and objectives of Triple Aim, it, it makes it really difficult to get their buy-in and change behavior in an impactful way. Part of that is realigning the incentives. Part of that is really for all the stakeholders and organization to come together and say, these are the goals and objectives under population health, and how do we translate these kind of things so that we can get behaviors out of our physicians and we can incentivize those behaviors with real financial opportunity and make it so that the physicians are more and better engaged. So let's just make sure that we have a common understanding. Could you explain Triple Aim really quickly? Happy to do so. Triple Aim encompasses patient satisfaction. It covers the cost of care as well as the quality of the care provided. Excellent. So um, let's talk about the transformation process here. I'm a highly compensated doctor who's rewarded for a lot of procedures. As I transform my system, or as my system transforms, and they had care coordinators, care management, and, and additional team members who can take care of my less intensive needed patients, and they can also um, you know, hopefully redirect them from immunizations, mm-hmm. you know, prevent any, any sickness. Um, doesn't that take away from my compensation? I mean, why should I support that process? What you're, what you're saying right now, Eric, is, is the fundamental fallacy. When you've got a system that compensates doctors for, provi- for, for producing units, any activities that are outside of activities that are geared toward producing units take away from the compensation that the, that the doctor is able to generate for themselves. And that's a problem because a lot of these activities that are non-unit generating, a lot of the activities that you just mentioned, for example, supervision of APPs, um, helping, helping other providers manage their patient panels, um, helping care for an ep- a total episode of care rather than just looking at it uh, on a widget by widget basis. These are all things that basically get in the way of successful achievement of, of this population health rollout. So in your example, I think it's really important to basically structure the plan or the compensation in a way where it doesn't necessarily, a doctor engaging in those activities isn't necessarily penalized for things that are actually going to eventually impact the, the triple aim. So how do we get around this? We're on an RVU system now. Uh, a lot of HMOs back in the day um, paid just a flat annual salary and that kind of thing. Uh, and that was viewed as, as unsuccessful because the doctors didn't perform. Um, I could pay a flat annual salary today, and how do I make sure the doctors are actually doing some of the things you expect them to do? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think the starting point here is really data measurement. I think it's very difficult to redesign a comp plan that aligns with the triple aim and the population health initiatives if you don't actually know what the outcomes are going to be. So you almost have to start with the outcomes and then think about the data that feeds into those outcomes. So 
A, you need enough data. B, you need quality data to do those kind of things. So the way that it works right now, for example, is docs are paid, let's say, uh, a set salary, $500,000 for the year. And perhaps some of that is a quality piece, but you don't really know, there's really no rigor behind the measurement of the quality piece. And so this is quote unquote, easy money for the doctors and the health systems and the organizations have a hard time thinking through that as well. So really what, what needs to happen is the physician's compensation plan needs to evolve in a way that, that also reflects the initiatives and priorities of the organization. If the organization needs to do a lot of upfront work to get the physician to interact with the care teams, et cetera, then transitional, then a transitional comp plan should be enacted or rather should be taken a look at to incentivize the physician to do those activities, not necessarily into perpetuity, but it needs to reflect the, the evolving needs of the organization. So when you're looking at this, where, where does everyone get their data? Is it, um, you know, if a patient leaves my system, St. Elsewhere, and they go to St. Nowhere and get a whole bunch of procedures done, how can I measure my doctor when that patient, I don't have access to that patient's records typically, information? How do you, how do you go about structuring these plans under those circumstances? It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a good question and it's a difficult, it's a difficult question because there isn't really a, a, an easy answer that's, that's feasible as it currently stands right now. What we need to get is greater participation from all the stakeholders. And I'm talking not necessarily the stakeholders within one organization, but there's gotta be an understanding between the payers. There's gotta be transparency and understanding between the payers, between the health system, between the providers to share this data for the great, to achieve the greater good, which is making sure that A, you have access to the data and B, you have access to quality data. The way that the system works right now, when a patient leaves a certain hospital system and goes to another, that's the end of it. And so you don't really have a continuity of care. If a patient goes to see a primary care physician, there I, I have worked with a whole bunch of organizations where that data, rather that fact pattern is not communicated in the right way for when that patient gets referred to a specialist in the same hospital system. There's low hanging fruit here. And I think that a lot of it is coordination and communication within these hospital teams to make sure that the triple aim can be achieved, that patient outcomes is front of mind. So where do you think we start at this point? Where do I think we start? Let's see. I would say the first step is getting buy-in from the stakeholders. And that's the board, that's, um, that's, the, that's hospital leadership, that's the physician leaders. I think it starts with culture and putting your money where your mouth is, where it's not necessarily just lip service, but rather it's let's, let's, have a, let's set up committees, administrative and, and, and similar, to essentially take a look at how do we actually start to incentivize physicians. 
you can't go and design, redesign a comp plan if the physicians don't understand what the objectives are in the first place. So it's, there's a lot of parallel tracks that are happening at the same time. One of them is at the leadership level, it's understanding the, what's going to be required to basically go out and get these initiatives in play. The second initiative is getting the physicians bought into this, both from a incentivizing them perspective, but then how are their care patterns going to change? How is their, how are they operationally going to either suffer or win from this, these proposed plans? And then it's also engaging in conversations with stakeholders that are outside of the organization, but still play a, a big part in this. And so, you know, we've we've seen we've seen this happen as you know folks are setting up ACOs. Uh, to your point, um, uh, HMOs. So, how do physicians respond to being told that their care patterns need to change? <laughs> it I can I can speak from personal experience that. Uh, a consultant behind a computer that's typing away and analyzing vast amounts of data. If if I'm going to go back to a physician and tell them that their care patterns need to change, that's probably not going to go over so well. But physicians are actually they're data driven individuals, and so the only way that you're going to get physician buy in that you're going to change behavior patterns is to really have a, an intelligent conversation with the physicians and show them what the what the impact of a change would be on the care outcomes. I think there are no physicians, there, there, there are most physicians out there are, are wanting to do the right thing. They're wanting to improve their patient's care. And so the way to get buy-in, the way for them to change their care patterns is through a data-driven approach where you're really getting them involved early on. You're really getting their buy-in through not only incentives, but to get them involved and to, to tie real financial incentives to changing those data patterns. So who, who ultimately has this conversation? I mean, you can generate a lot of data. Is it you who stands up and tells the doctors, hey, time to change? Is it the hospital administration? Is it another physician? Is it the chief medical officer of the, of the system? Who, who does this? And I, because I just want to make sure we want to learn how you get the best buy-in. I think it, it can start at the physician level, but really there's parallel tracks where um, you got to get hospital leadership involved and you got to get the board involved because those are the ultimate yes, no decision makers. But regardless of whether the decision is yes or no, let's say the decision is yes, we're going to move forward on this you gotta be able to get the physicians to mobilize and buy in and believe in this thing. So you raise a great point with the sort of the management incentives. How do you transform those? Because you know, a lot of management teams are paid just based on straight profitability, you know, sometimes census. Um, there, there are a number of uh, incentives in many popular management programs that I would view as being detrimental to the transformation to population health. The way that management in hospitals is incentivized right now is they actually are incentivized to push away from any major changes. A lot of these folks are really uh, you know, going to be retiring soon or they came into the system 10, 15 years ago 
and are very used to and comfortable with the way that things work in a fee-for-service world. And so that's all they really know. But there are a lot of barriers to, to getting them to actually change as well. So they may be compensated in some way, shape, or form on some somehow something somehow tied to census or to activity at the hospital. And when they see those numbers, because of a lot of these population health initiatives, when they see those numbers dwindle and there are more empty beds, what ends up happening is they start to question, hey, is this a good idea? Um, what they don't realize is that um, the, the, the savings, the, the, the benefits of that are, are there's a timing mismatch between perhaps some of the quote unquote costs of transitioning to population health and some of the benefits realized. You've got a lot of folks who are incentivized for short-term gains and, and not necessarily looking at the long-term. So a lot of it is actually bringing awareness to why it's not working and why it's failed time and time again up to date. So would you advocate flipping the switch and immediately going to more of a more of a long-term approach or is there a transition that we need to do there's certainly going to be a transition and the only reason is because it's very difficult for a lot of these organizations who are really built all the incentives not just monetary but non-monetary incentives the way that the, the way that people judge a hospital the wait times the the the, the number of beds etc i think that Changing all of those things overnight is going to be very difficult and it's going to create more burden and more barriers to the population health transition. The majority of the goals and objectives that are incentivized right now on any given leadership's dashboard are short-term in nature. Right now, a minority are really long-term and this is just a management problem. However, to your point, what we need to do is really think about readjusting the split between short-term and long-term to make it so that you're incentivizing behaviors that move away from the pitfalls of fee-for-service and start to embrace the low-hanging fruit that's available to pave the path forward on population health. So I've got a bunch of salary surveys sitting here. Um, I would argue, and correct me if I'm wrong, those are directed at more of a fee-for-service world. How do, you, how do you tell people how to approach this? I mean, what, what compass do you use? If I can't use a salary survey published by ABC, um, do they have to go to Amit and get a customized one? Or, you know, where, where do we even get the data to do this kind of thing? It's really, really difficult to get that data, but it certainly, there are certainly some avenues to approach. So, a lot of organizations, as you know, Eric, basically live and die by the surveys. And a lot of consulting firms out there live and die by the surveys. And I think it's no secret that the surveys in and of themselves are inherently flawed for several reasons. I mean, it's the best thing that people had for a long time, which is to take a sampling of what's out there and then to extrapolate that to the entire population. But the majority of the work effort that's captured by those surveys is in a fee-for-service world. So they reflect the behaviors of somebody who wants to succeed in a fee-for-service model. When you're transitioning to population health, 
some of those things are not going to be applicable and others are going to be applicable. So compensation in totality might be applicable because you want to make sure that physicians don't feel like they're going to be losing out on real dollars as they move toward population health versus fee-for-service. I mean, they're still caring for the patient. In fact, they're achieving triple aim in the fee, in the in the population health model versus the fee-for-service. But if they're going to lose any of that compensation, they're going to be left wondering, why are we even doing this? But at the same time, you want to make sure that Whatever data that you do have available, and I think that one of the ways that I've seen this is for a lot of these programs to pilot programs. So, for example, um, a client that I worked with in the southern United States was basically trying to make it so that team-based care would be compensated as part of their population health initiative. And what I mean by that is, okay, at a physician level, how do we incentivize physicians to basically provide holistic care through their, through their APPs, um, through managing patient panels, through managing um, a comprehensive set of episodes or series of episodes rather than looking at it um, on an episode-by-episode basis? And, and one of those ways is through PMPM. But... Up until now, there really hasn't been a great way to compensate for team-based care, except for the, the, the different avenues that I just mentioned. But one thing that's really interesting is that there's just been a proposed Stark waiver for a whole bunch of different services where all of a sudden those population health services where the organizations are taking on a big portion of the risk are going to be proposed, you know, they're going to be proposed waivers to the Stark Law, which has historically been a regulatory obstacle, as many people see it. Sure. Let's assume St. Elsewhere, my system, is transforming to population health. You know, where I would want to start at St. Elsewhere at least, is I want to systematize the practices. I want to really incentivize not just the physicians, but I want to make sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. So I go to my doctors. I say, we're going to create some centers of excellence. We're going to do uh, neurosurgery, cardiology, uh, maybe orthopedics, oncology. We're going to start there. Um, But hey, doctors, there's going to be a significant amount of work here how do I even begin to figure out their pay? Because the RVU model there is broken. The doctors in theory here have a lot more responsibility than they ever did. And frankly, the viability of my entire enterprise is going to depend on successfully making this transformation and, and transformation uh, transforming our entire care process. So, you know, it really seems to me that some photocopied uh, salary survey is is. I don't know. I just don't see how that works. You're absolutely right. Being married to the surveys is is going to be a big hindrance for organizations that are looking to make leaps and be innovative and truly be impactful in the population health space. One of the ways that I've observed a client be very successful at this, at, at the situation that you described at St. Elsewhere, is rethinking the incentive structure. So to your point, if a physician is purely on an RVU model or has a base salary plus an RVU model, any activities outside of RVU generating activities are going to take away from that physician's 
ability to generate income. So what my client did is really start to think about what are the activities that we want to incentivize the physicians and how do we incentivize them in ways to actually go and achieve the, the given objective. So there were two parts to this. One part was there's some payment for the time that physicians are spending in your, in your center of excellence model to get the medical director of primary care and the medical director of surgery and the medical director of quality to all come sit in a room, spend two hours together, five hours together in a room and think about how they can be better coordinated. So that there's a time element to it and that's basically paying those folks for the time and that's a carve out in addition to whatever they're, they're doing on the clinical side. The other aspect of it is really incentivizing them to create uh, meaningful objectives and incentives and then achieve those objectives and incentives. And so here is where you can basically tie a lot of the incentives to achievement of those outcomes. So for example, you can have a way to fund the pool of dollars and then a different way to distribute that pool of dollars. If you've got 30 physicians and you've got a pool of dollars for, let's say, patient satisfaction, you, you keep those, those physicians are paid a certain salary and a part of that salary is at risk, but it's at risk because the way that it's going to be distributed to those physicians is physicians who are able to generate higher patient satisfaction scores or who are able to control costs while still providing very quality care, they're gonna get a larger piece of the at-risk compensation. So the two components that I went over are, there's a set time-based component, which is we know that these activities are extremely important and we're going to make sure that you're made whole because we're not gonna dock you for not generating RVUs during that time. But also when you are generating RVUs, Let's think about the quality of those RBUs. So let's go back to the, we'll call it a physician culture issue. Are you noticing a difference in the outlook towards pop health between the primary care doctors and some of the specialists, or even maybe a generational outlook uh, as between different uh, specialists of different generations? Uh, what are you seeing and, and how are you helping address those? Definitely. I think that at least, and this is based on anecdotal conversations that I've had with many of my physician friends as well as my, my colleagues um, on the hospital side, but a lot of the education and a lot of the residency training in this day and age are really getting physicians to start to familiarize themselves with the population health initiative. So that's not to say that a doctor in their 50s or 60s is not bought into those ideas. It's just that when they were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s and developing their careers, the only way that they were incentivized was really through an RVU-based model. It was the more widgets you produce, the more units you produce, the more money you're going to make. So there's a fundamental learning, unlearning, and then relearning that's happening in one in a couple of generations. And in another generation, it's okay, we all understand that population health is a really important thing, but the way that we're compensated is still on a per unit basis. 
And so for those people, it's, it's helping them tie together the initiatives and making sure that they're incentivized for the right behaviors. If you don't put money where your mouth is, if the hospital or health system doesn't actually incentivize those behaviors for, the, for these young physicians, we're gonna have yet another generation that needs to learn, that, that has learned something, that needs to unlearn it and then relearn it. So Amit, let's revisit the cultural issue. In many organizations, we have a situation where it's compliance versus finance. How does population healthcare change uh, that dynamic within an organization? Yeah, that's a good question, Eric. The way that things have historically run, there's always been a conflict between compliance risk and business risk. So the business risk folks would say, we really need to enter into this contract with these physicians because if we don't, we're gonna lose our trauma status, we're gonna lose this program, we're gonna, our patients are gonna suffer. And on the flip side of the table, you're gonna have the compliance people saying, well, is it worth entering into this contract if, for example, we don't necessarily have uh, the right documentation, the story, the numbers don't quite add up, and we're, we're subjecting ourselves to a level of regulatory and compliance risk that, would, that could bring meaningful harm to the organization. What population health, the, what the population health mindset has really done is it's no longer compliance risk versus business risk, rather it's compliance risk and business risk. And let me explain that really quickly. So everything, both compliance risk is dealing with the regulation, Stark anti-kickback and the other applicable regulations when it comes to incentivizing physicians for certain behaviors. And on the flip side, you've got business risk, which is just your, the ability of your business, or in this case, your healthcare organization to provide the care that the patients need. So when a, a hospital or health system is provided with the opportunity to get into a contract, specifically in the population health realm, one of the triple aims is making sure that the cost of care is, well, it, one of the focuses is the cost of care. It's not necessarily that a hospital is going out there and trying to pay above market. We know that a lot of hospitals are already financially squeezed and pretty much all of them are having to incur huge losses and big subsidies and, and having to subsidize some of the service lines. And so it's less about, okay, can we pay, how much can we pay? It's what's the right amount to pay given the financial impact elsewhere. So I think in a population health setting, to have the right regulatory and governance framework and controls in place is of critical importance because those things aren't just cost centers anymore. Wow, Ahmed, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure, Eric. Thank you.